Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4:17 to 5:2. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, uh, Linda. This is Linda Lee, and uh, she's a part of the team that's going to be going to Lebanon. We'll be keeping you and all the group in prayer. Well, during, during my first year in college, I moved to Chicago, went into the dorm. There was a young man on my dorm floor. I'm going to call him Mike, wasn't, but who almost never changed his clothes. I mean, he rarely showered. He almost never combed his hair. I don't think he used any deodorant. Uh, We we could smell him coming from a mile away, you know. So you know how it is with uh, 18-year-olds. We decided we'd help help Mike out a little bit by sometimes throwing him in the shower or by shaming him in every way we knew how to try to get him to clean up. One time, we even put our money together. We didn't even have that much money, but we put it together and we went out to the store and bought these toiletries, you know, some soap and and shampoo and deodorant and things, and we put them all in a care package for him. We mailed it to him anonymously and we waited with bated breath. So uh, one evening, we were sitting in the lounge in our dorm floor and in comes Mike. He's just bubbling over with joy. He had the package and he says, He said, guys, look what somebody sent me. I don't even know who did it. He said, but I don't use this stuff. So he gave it, started giving it all right back to us. 
I'll just tell you, eventually we just gave up on Mike. Well, a few months later, we were all down in the student center. I think it was a Monday night watching a Chicago Bears football game when the elevator door opened and off walked. It looked a lot like Mike. I mean, we thought it must be a cousin or maybe, it, maybe it's his brother. But th this guy, he had new clothes on. His hair was combed and he even smelled of Armani cologne. So we looked at But then we saw the truth. This was Mike. But it was a new Mike. And we just couldn't figure out what had changed him. So we were just baffled there. Uh, a few moments later, the elevator door opened and uh, she walked out. <laughs> then we knew what had happened. Uh, her name was Amy. Uh, Mike had met her and had immediately been smitten with love. And for some reason, we couldn't figure it out, she seemed to like him too. But she had told him in no uncertain terms, you either clean up or I'm not going out with you. And I'll tell you, I learned something powerful that day. What rules, shaming, and manipulation cannot change, love can. Love can. I tell you, I thought of that story again when I read through this text and was getting ready to preach the sermon to you. Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2 that Linda has read for us, I think is one of the most profound passages in the entire New Testament about the way that God has promised to transform our lives. We'll just have to race through it. It's just so much that is rich there. But already at the very beginning, if you miss everything else, I want you to know this, that the transforming work of God in your life is an act of his love for you. That's why there is always hope for us. So we're going to begin. Uh, we're thinking about the need for all of us to have our lives transformed. That starts with these first five verses. They run from verse 17 to 21. And I want to highlight that one phrase, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. What we have here are some pretty strong words. They run parallel. If you were here last week, after telling us all the things that God had done out of his grace for us, then the Apostle Paul says, from this prison, I'm in very strong words, he says, I want you to learn to walk, and that's the word that he uses, walk worthy of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus. Now, starting with verse 17, he does the flip side of it. He says, now I've got to tell you, you dare not walk in the way that the Gentiles do. Very strong words that he says there. But there's something really striking about him saying that because most of the Christians in the church at that first church of Ephesus back in the first century, most of them were Gentiles. What could he have meant when he said, you Gentiles don't live like Gentiles? Got to think about that. Are you thinking about it? I, I hope so. <laughs> Let me say first that Paul was not saying nasty things about unbelievers out there in the world. You know, I, I started going to church when I was about six or seven years old. I've heard this text preached, and again and again, I've heard the preacher say, look, this is how bad people are out in the world, so don't you spend any time with the people out in the world. They will all pollute you. That cannot be what this text is about. And, and for one reason, it's this, because that isn't the way Paul lived his life. He was always going out and engaging with people in this world. That's not the way Jesus lived his life. 
I'll be encouraging you to read about how he did. And he's always going out and interacting with and entering into a relationship with people. Now, I know, and as Linda was reading, and if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look at verses 17 to 21. It it seems to have some awfully harsh language. But I want you to know that, that I wish it were not translated the way that it is. Because we don't really get at what he is getting at here. What, what he says, if you'll see, those who are Gentiles, those who are not believers, he said, were separated from the life of God. It's really where it begins. And he says, because of that, they are ignorant. And I know for us, that's a pejorative negative term. But it really wasn't. It simply meant they don't know. They're not alive to God. And then because of that, he says they'll be futile as they try to think because they don't know eternal things. They don't know the eternal God and their sensitivities, their sensibilities, the things they're alive to are not to eternal things but only to this material world. Because of that, if you don't really know God, all you can live for is what you know. They go after the things that will fulfill their lives, which will be often pleasure. And he talks about even money or, or greed. So that's, do you see what he's getting at here? Basically, he is saying that people who don't know God, you can't expect that they're going to be able to know how to live for God because they've never been made alive to him. But he says, we have come alive through faith in Jesus. We too, Ephesians 4, we read it together this morning. We were dead in our own sins. We were the same place, but no longer are we there. Now we are alive to God and our lives should be different. And what he was doing was preaching not to the world as a whole. He was preaching about people like us at church. He said, you say that you're alive to God, but you live as if you're dead to God. If you know him, your life has to be changed. So I'll tell you one of the points. I'm going to write it here so you can see it because I think sometimes what I experienced growing up is what we often do. The point, the point of this is that Jesus' followers need to spend less time saying how bad people in the world are and spend a whole lot more time showing people the new life that we have in Jesus. That's really what he gets at here. I have one person who agrees with me, so I'm I'm glad. (laughs) And that's really what he's writing about. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about this in other places. The place that he writes about it most directly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, because apparently in one letter that he'd written, they misunderstood it, and they said, we're not going to spend any time with those people out in the world. And this is what he wrote them. I wrote to you in my last letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or, or greedy or swindlers or are idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. What he's saying is when you come to Jesus, you should start wanting to know God and live for him. He brings us into one church family, as we talked about last week, as we do life together. Sometimes we should uh, correct one another and help one another when we see people walking away from the Lord, calling them to come back to the Lord. And at the end of the day, we who come to Lake Avenue Church and claim to be believers, as the Ephesians claim to be believers, should have our lives being different. I thought about this, and I I remember a number of years ago when I was speaking at a a gathering of all the campus Christian groups at Penn State University. 
uh, before I got up to speak to them, they had um, a young man who had grown up in a church like, like ours, but in coming there, it had sort of a real awakening in his heart, and they could see the difference that Christ was making in his life right there on the campus, and they'd asked him to share what was making the difference. And I remember he said this. I don't know if I got it exactly right, but I think I'm pretty close. He said, all this kicked in one day when I woke up to myself and so no, saw no difference between my life now and my life before knowing Christ. Even more, I saw no difference between I, the way I was living my life and the way my friends were living theirs. And I knew something was wrong. And he was right. Something was wrong. I mean, if God comes into our lives, it should start making a difference. So let's start thinking about that. There is a decision that should begin to lead to transformation that sort of launches this transformation of our lives. And that's what verses 22 to 24 are all about. And in these verses, I want to highlight these two phrases. Put off your old self. Put on the new self. So here, the word picture that Paul uses, language usually used for, for putting on and putting off clothes. And he says, before coming to Christ, you're going to be involved in this world that is so imperfect. And so that's like old clothes. When you have on these old smelly clothes and you're going to go and have a... If Mike was going to be having a date with Amy, she would tell him to change, right? <laughs> so put those things off and put on new clothes. I mean, it's, it's an image I think all of us can understand, right? And he says, when we do this... It's going to lead to this verse 24, something that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Boy, I, treat, I read that language and I say, that's God's goal for you and me. We were made in his image. We've walked away from it, but he wants to restore that, created again to be restored to the image of the one in whose image we were made. His goal for you personally and for our whole church is that we'll become more and more like the God in whose image we are made. Becoming like that will make us look more and more like Jesus. And do you remember last week I said what God has given us so that we can actually become that? He's given us his word. Uh, he's given us his spirit but he's also given us one another. And in the life of the church, through his spirit, he gives each one of us gifts. You remember he said, it's like a body where each ligament, as it's working alongside of one another, the whole thing becomes strong and it becomes that together. So in this, it is the work of God. Jesus died to bring about this new self in us. The Holy Spirit is given to bring about this new self, this new life in us. He's even created us and put us in this church to have that happen. We do have a role in it, and that role is in this language, something we have to intentionally and consciously by faith put off, and someone or something we have to put on. Now, the um, really unique thing about this is what Paul says we have to put off and what we have put on. A lot of people in his world said, you've got to put off that hatred that you have. You've got to put off that anger that just seems to be there. But here he says something much bigger, much all comprehensive of this. Do you notice he says, you've got to put off the old self, and you've got to put on a new self. What on earth is that about? Because you know, that, that's speaking about everything you and I are. 
And it's really the same kind of language that Jesus used when he said we have to repent and then believe. What, what that's talking about is we're walking in one direction without God, and usually I'm just directing my own life, right? Doing what I want to do, being pulled away from God. We meet Jesus, and he says you've got to turn from that and turn around, because that's the language of repentance and conversion. Turn around, you go into a whole new direction, and that new direction is following following Jesus. And what he's saying is, it's going to change everything about us. When he tells you to take off the old self and put on the new self, he is speaking about, one, where you go with your body and what you do with it. He's talking about our minds, where you go with your mind, what you put into it. It has to do with those, those goals of our lives. For whom are you really living? For yourself, for your own accomplishments, or really to bring glory to God? It talks about our inner motivations, this selfness of us. What is it that, that motivates you? Trying to get ahead, winning the battle, a, a big reputation, what is it? Or is it just really gratitude to God? and wanting to express that in some way to him. If, if I can boil it down, and I've written it for you here. When you place your faith in Jesus, it really is like taking off an old self-directed way of life that was not alive to God, and then you put on a whole new life, one, now alive to God the Father. Are you? Number two, a life with Jesus as the Lord who is guiding you. Number three, with the Holy Spirit as your guide and your source of strength, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work within you. And what Paul is saying, that when that happens, like the guy at Penn State said, my life can't be the same as it was before. So I've thought about this in my own like with God. It's launched when we first believe. Can you remember that first time that you heard the gospel and you said, this is true. Here, here's my sin, Lord. Do you really want it? He says, I do. And then he throws it away as far as east is from the west. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> Here it is. Do you remember that? And then we say, here is my life. I am yours. I remember doing that. I was just six or seven years old. My folks had just become believers. As a six or seven-year-old, I couldn't have been. I don't think I was a murderer or a thief or a drug dealer or something like that. But I tell you, I still remember so well just knowing that where my life was going and the things that I was doing, that there was just something there that was not right. And when the preacher preached and called us to, to give our lives to the Lord, I went and I gave that to the Lord and I placed my trust in him. And it began. But now that I've been walking with the Lord, what, 60, 60 plus years now, I've found that that person that is drawn this way toward the old self still is too much alive. I feel so tugged often in directions that I know are self-directed, not God-directed. Anybody else, I hope it's not just your pastor that feels like that. I feel that. And I found that I have to this daily, conscious, intentional saying, Lord, here is all I am. Today I'm going to be tugged in this direction. I already know it. 
but Lord, I want to live my life to please you. It's what the Apostle Paul said later in 1 first, first Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he said, before I lived for myself, but now that I've met Jesus, I must learn to live not for myself, but for him who died and rose again. I find that that is neat. It begins with that conscious step of faith where I come alive to God. It continues on as until God is finished in his work with me. I give my life afresh to him. I mean, all of this was so well illustrated in one of my favorite books. Have you ever read the Narnia Chronicles, the children's books that C.S. Lewis wrote? I, I loved them. I didn't read them until I was adult. I don't know if I, I'm sure I would have liked them as a kid too. I think my favorite one is the third or the fourth. It's the Voyage of the Drawn Treader. It's a, it's, a, it's a ship voyage. And it begins by introducing the main character. His name was Eustace Clarence Scrub. And Lewis says he almost deserved it because in his inner being, Eustace was a dragon. I mean, he was just a horrid little boy. And one day he woke up, and he wasn't just a dragon on the inside. He had become a dragon on the outside as well. And he, it seems like he was okay with being a dragon on the inside, but he didn't want to be a dragon on the outside, so he tried to pull off that dragon skin himself. I have a picture up here just to have you envision this sort of thing. But, but in the book, it, it tells us every time he tries to take off the skin, it just grows right back again. It's kind of like our lives. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm never going to do that. You go right back out and do it. So he tried to change this whole old self himself, and it didn't work until the Christ figure, the lion Aslan, came and said to him, you will have to let me undress you. I love the way that Lewis writes about it. The lion made a cut so deep into Eustace that it went right into his heart. And Eustace came and told his friends, after that, the lion went out and dressed me in new clothes, the same ones I have on now, as a matter of fact. So, see, that's how it begins. That's how it begins, this encounter of faith with the Lord Jesus. But then it goes on, and I love this part as well, in which Lewis writes, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And so I tell you, that cure begins when you make that first step of saying, here is my life, I entrust it all to you. And then it continues as we walk step by step with him. Which brings me to the third thing I want you to see. Some evidences. Maybe you can look into your own heart here. As we get to verses 25 to 32, there's some evidences that God is actually at work in your life. And it usually, and he talks about those evidences are going to come out right in the way you deal with other Christian people, right within your church family. And it's going to culminate with this phrase, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, as in Christ God has forgiven you. So again, this takes us back to the last section I preached to you about in, in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, that when you become a follower of Jesus, you're made, 
You're brought into a relationship with God, but the other part you've just got to own, he brings us into a relationship with one another too. He brings us into one church family and tells us the only way we're going to grow is if we love one another and we serve one another. It's like a body, he says. Each part has to play its own role. And what he says here now is this. If God brings you into the life of the church and you just keep thinking and behaving the same way you did before you came alive to God, it's not going to work. You'll tear one another down instead of building one another up. And in verses 25 to 32, he just spells out some of the ways that that should be seen when we gather with our church family here at Lake. And it's amazing language to look at. Stop stealing from one another. What was happening in that church? He even uses this like, stop brawling. Did you notice that? I don't know if I would have wanted to go to the church. And he says, yep, that's the church I've put you in. You stick there and just stop doing those things. He speaks practically about matters about how we talk to one another. And how when we get angry with one another, we actually deal with that anger. Now, this week, as I've been preparing the message and all this stuff happened, with the killings there at the synagogue, the Etzkaim Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, with the bombs that were sent to so many people, with that mass migration, both in the Middle East as well as from Central America up this direction, with all of that happening, the question that so often comes up is, when that is happening, these big, big things in the world, why is it, Paul, that you speak about such small things as the way we talk to one another? And I can almost imagine you might think that, Pastor Greg, all these things are happening, why don't you just come together and all we're gonna talk about are the big things out in the world. I wanna tell you God cares about the big things out in the world these awful evils that are there, and he is at work that those things will not stay. But here I want to tell you again the message of Ephesians. Are you with me here? To make a change in the evils in this world, the main thing that God does, the main vehicle of him taking this world from where it is to a place where everything is right is he plants local families of his people in neighborhoods like this like he did in Ephesus and like he has done with us here in Pasadena. And he said, there in that church family, you have to show this world a different way. You're going to come in and you're going to feel the same things everybody else feels and live in some of the same ways that must begin to be transformed. But as you do, you'll be able to go out and make a difference in this hurting world. That's God's main way to do it. And the problem is, if he has planted us here for this reason, the same kind of ways of thinking and ways of speaking, ways of living happen in the church as are happening out in the world. We can make no difference in this world. And so to deal with the big things, he calls us into the church and makes sure that we deal with what seem like small things, but they are huge things. Because my brothers and sisters, if we come into the church and we say, we've got to do something about all that hatred out in the world, and we have hatred here, there is no way we can go out and authentically love a hurting world if we don't authentically love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, amen. So, got off script there for just a moment. But here, I've written this for you so we won't miss it. God's word teaches us that Jesus' followers begin to learn how to address the big issues of life as we learn to deal with the small ones with our people at church. 
And then we go out into places like Lebanon, out into our cities and into our world, united in love because of our faith in Jesus and together declaring the glory of God, declaring the glory of God. Now, with all of that, a couple of basic things. He writes about a lot of things, but two of the main ones is how we speak and how we deal with anger. So he says, put off falsehood, put on speaking the truth in love, verse 15 and verse 25, because, he says, we are members of one another, and we're going to be eternally. <laughs> so we might as well learn to deal with one another transparently and lovingly and use our speech to build one another up instead of tearing it down. It is really hard because when we come into the church, yes, we're united in our faith in Jesus, but we have all the other different views that everybody else in the world has, right? And so when we get together and we start talking about some of those things we disagree about, we get mad. What do we do about that? Sometimes we can yell just like you see on TV, and we get angry and then just stalk off. And he deals with that too. And he says, be angry and do not sin, but don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So that's the second thing. Put off anger that tears down people. Put on anger that tears down evil. That might not be the way you've usually seen that stated, but the reason I put it that way is anger is something that is also a part of the way that God relates to evil. Anger is not always wrong. God is angry about the evil that's destroying our lives. God, God is angry about the evil that is destroying this world that he loves with his whole heart. There is a rightful place for anger, but our anger has to be directed against the evil, not to tearing down the people who themselves are being destroyed by evil. So when we get to be angry, I mean, his words are so, so important. When you get angry, don't sin. When you, when you get angry, don't just engage in the same thing that the one you're angry with is doing, and especially, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And, and you know why, don't you? Because anger is that kind of thing, when it goes into your inner being, it just festers and grows, and, and it eats you alive, and it destroys those around as well. Brothers and sisters, we direct the anger toward the evil, but we just don't let it fester inside of our inner beings. And in fact, verse 29, these words are very concise and convicting. So whenever you're feeling those things, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Instead, so helpful to me, what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, other-centered. When they're walking away from the Lord, call them back. Offer them forgiveness that it may benefit those who listen to your words. Oh, this couldn't have been easy back in that church in Ephesus. Do you know in that church, we'll see it in chapter six, there were people who were slaves in that church and their owners were in that church. How did that play out? What if the slave became the elder? How did that play? This could not have been easy. But somehow they, they worked through that, through the power of God's Spirit. And that gives me great hope that whatever we deal with in our broken world, the Spirit of God is great enough to draw us together so that we will bring glory to his name. So I'll give you again verse 29. So here's what we've got to do with one another, brothers and sisters. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. 
How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, last thing, I got to give you something to take home before you're gone. And you'll see these two phrases. I've taken one phrase from the early part, verses 20 to 21, one phrase from the end, chapter 5, verse 1. Learn Christ. That's literally what he says there when he says, you have heard Christ. He, He says, learn Christ. And then he says, be imitators of God, loving just as Jesus loves you. I I, want to give you this because almost every time I preach a sermon like this about transformation, people come up to me and say, Pastor Greg, I see what we have to become, but now tell us how we actually do that. And and I always sense they want to have a checklist, you know, sort of check, 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 kind of like fixing a car. Okay, which is this parts functioning? Is this working? Does it just need some oil? Check, 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 and then poof, we're going to be perfect. I just got to tell you, brothers and sisters, we don't fix very fast. Using his image, we're more like a body than like a car, and in a body, every part has to sort of be functioning and growing together. So it is a process, and it takes a lot of time, and it's also something that works, as our song said, from the inside out. Biblically, it it is God's work within us, and and it it is something that takes time. But there is one thing that I'm going to give you today that I think you might actually engage in that, that I have found so helpful in my walk with the Lord, and it's taken from those two phrases, learn Christ, be imitators of God, living a life of love. What does that look like? How can I imitate God? Well, look at Jesus, he said, as Jesus gave, loved us and gave himself for us. The point is this, and I started with the story of Mike and Amy, because when there's somebody we really love, we want to please them. And then I, I mixed this with something that my daughter sent me. Um, uh, my grandson, Brooks, really loves his dad. And it's really clear, wants to become like his dad. And that even goes all the way d- down to the, the very way that he dresses. And so some of the pictures that, that I started getting made me see what Brooks always does. He sees what his dad's wearing, and then he wants to dress less. I, I, I'll show you two of them. I'll just be, <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Goes out and looks at that, and then I had a second one here too. I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> you feel the love there, and you see he wants to become like his dad. And then when his dad goes to church and he has a plaid shirt on that's untucked, Brooks goes running in, gets his plaid shirt, and has it untucked. All of this just illustrates this illustration when there's someone we love and admire, and we want to become like that person. It begins shaping our own lives. Are you with me here? This reminded me of one of the most life-changing things that a Christian brother uh, encouraged me to do, once again, back in my college years. My my RA, my resident assistant, said that he would be willing to mentor me. And one of the first things he did, he, he had me buy a journal. And then what he wanted me to do was read through the Gospel of Luke. And as he said, Greg, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, stop each time you see Jesus encountering or engaging in a relationship with someone. And as you see the way he engages in those relationships, he gave me three questions. I've put them here for you. Maybe you want to make note because I'd like to ask you to try to do this. It's it's amazing how, how beautiful it is. Number one, how did Jesus see and treat that person? He told me not to write any more than one page because he'd come to already know me. He wanted me to keep it short and concise. Number two, what was different about the way Jesus treated that person 
from the way most people in the world do it. I remember that one of the first ones I came to was in Luke chapter 5 with the man who was filled with leprosy rushing into Capernaum. Nobody else wanted him even in the city, wanted him to be thrown out. What did Jesus do? He went and touched him and, and welcomed him. Then three, what difference will it make in your relationships if you imitate what Jesus did? I said, Greg, do that, and then we'll talk about it. I think few things have made such a difference in my life as, as doing that. You probably can tell when I preach from the Gospels, it still influences me enormously. I'd encourage you to think about doing that this week. Don't you think it's so consistent with what Paul says? In the transforming work of God, yes, it is his work, but the thing he encourages us to do is to put on Christ by learning Christ and imitating Christ. Let us, let us here learn, too, as he says, live lives of love. I mean, right here in our church family, just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, and that became a fragrant, don't you love that word, fragrant offering? Not like Mike was, <laughs> a fragrant offering. Oh, I tell you, I'm praying that God will keep using this, his word, in, in our church and in our hearts and in our lives so that people who meet us are people who walk by Lake Avenue Church, smell the fragrance of Christ, will be drawn to him. It will bring us great joy. It will bring glory to God. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us. Thank you. Let me lead us in prayer as Jeremy comes to lead us in a song. Father, I pray I've been faithful to this word and where I have used it in all of our lives to do what you've done through this passage in so many lives throughout history to continue your promise transforming work in each one of us. We know it needs to be seen right here in our own congregation. So Father, we pray that here we might more and more live lives of love giving up ourselves for one another in the ways that Jesus has done for us. Speak to us, Father. Show us how we should apply this to our lives. And this we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.